see Jeff is still talking, so I'm just going to have to <laughs> wait till he stops. So today, Pastor John will be in uh, Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. And as he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. And let me, uh, I'm going to pray for a second for John before he comes up here. Pray for the message. It's always good to do this. Glorious and Heavenly Father, be with the message today. Let your word go forth clearly. Let it penetrate our hearts. Let us understand it. Let us be, give us the ability to reason well with your word, God. Let it convict us. Let it Build us up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And I do particularly appreciate that because uh, this was, this was a, a rough week of study, which isn't a bad thing. It's good. It's just a lot of wrestling. I feel like I walked away from the wrestling match with a limp, the sinew, and my knee was affected. William. That uh, was a gift uh, from William to Pastor John uh, two Sundays ago now. Yeah, this is the second Sunday. That will forever happen now. Uh, and it does seem like it's about right. I think about the last grain fell as we were uh, finishing up last week. So uh, thank you, John, for, for reading that. And, and thank you also for calling out Jeff for talking too much. Uh, he's distracting the young man next to him even still as we speak. Um, <laughs> You know, I'm going to tell you real quick my favorite Jeff story. Um, uh, Jeff, aside from the uh, uh, cheese fingers and wearing a leaf tail uh, the other week, one, one day when Jeff was doing the scripture reading, he read the exact chapter number and the exact verses from the scripture, but from the wrong book. Um, love Jeff. Passages like this one, um, this is one of those passages that as you're reading through your Bible and, and you know, maybe you become familiarized with the scripture or maybe you're just reading through your Bible, there's things that we can read in here very quickly. Um, and, and that can be okay, but we can also miss some things. Some of what's being talked about here is incredible and historic. Um, I don't know how many of you know about this, but a buddy of mine called me um, several years ago. He actually lives in Florida now. Um, he used to live here, but he moved on to warmer places. He loves to put pictures of himself at the beach, you know. Um, 
he called me one day and he said, hey, do you want to go to Israel? And I said, yeah, of course. It's on my bucket list. You know, I might do it. I might not, right? Um, I think it would be cool. I, I don't worship the concept. I think it'd be neat. Um, and he said, hey, I'm going to send you an email address. Just email them and say you're interested in this trip. I said, well, I'm not really in the market for this trip. You know, and he said, no, 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 this guy wants to take pastors to Israel. So half unbelievingly, I did. I sent an email and they sent me back. They said, okay, great. Here are the dates. Can you do it? And I'm like, is this real? So I signed up for this trip and I kind of forgot about it in a sense. And then it came closer to time to go and packed my bags and things got real and we really went. Um, We went to the airport. And as soon as I got to the airport, we met up with very sketchy people and, um, we, we, we go and we have to go through customs and, and they start, they say, okay, well, who's going to go first? And I say, I'll go first because I'm an idiot. And we get up there and they start asking us lots of questions like, oh, hey, uh, so you're, you're coming to Israel. Why do you want to come to Israel? And I say, oh, you know, just kind of, it's a Holy Land group. I want to see where, where Paul walked and where Jesus lived and all the history of the Bible. They said, great. Where'd you get your ticket? And I said, uh, some guy wants to take pastors to Israel. They're like, oh, what was his name? I was like, uh, I don't actually know. It was just given to me. They're, they said, you don't think it's strange that someone just gave you a ticket to come into another country? So anyway, long story short, they let me in. Um, and so what we're reading about today with the temple being destroyed, the wildest thing is I remember being there, walking around on this place. So Jesus talking about one stone not being left on top of the other. I've seen it. And at the same time, I've seen people worshiping it, almost literally. It's the wailing wall, putting in prayer requests and slipping them into the wall and, and having this whole experience. It's very, very strange. And so passages like this actually strike a little bit of fear in me for what Jesus is saying and the lasting warning that he gives. And I think we're very quick to put the warning on the Israelites. And I think we're very slow to realize the warning for ourselves. Um, It's funny, in the American church, we talk about the high church and the low church. Uh, If you're not familiar, we would be the low church. Uh, The high church would have, you know, lots of order to the service, lots of reading. Um, Perhaps some of you remember as a kid, kneeling and standing and kneeling and standing and kneeling and standing. And we don't have those things, right? We don't have order to our service. We don't do all these things rotely. We just, we come in and we have coffee and we talk to each other. And then we sit in the same seat we sit in every week. And then we sing exactly two songs. And then someone comes forward and they read the scriptures. And then we teach from that scripture for about 45 minutes or until the last grain of sand drops through that glass. And then we finish up with two songs. And once a month we do communion. Seems very much ordered. And so we feel like sometimes we have escaped a lot of the kinds of warnings that Jesus is giving for the people, relying too much on systems, relying too much on controls. We try to avoid systems and controls here very, very purposefully. Having a committee on committees always makes me laugh. Having votes will never do. But we still have to be very cautious of trusting structures over trusting God and relying too much on the comforts around us. As Americans, we've enjoyed so much freedom for so long. 
we've come to even worship that. We're very offended that Mr. Potato Head is now... He's now Potato Head. He's not him. He's it. It is now Potato. I can't even say... I don't even know what to call it him. Sometimes I think the anger that comes up in us around those kinds of things is maybe from a selfish place. So there's a a fear that comes up in me from this text, and I hope it puts fear in you. And I don't mean fear like crippled in the corner, hiding away. I mean the kind of fear that sharpens your senses for battle that makes you pay attention, that tunes your ear. I think it was John Piper that talked about this, the way that the the soldier is attuned to every breaking stick in the woods at night. None of that goes unnoticed. Very attuned, paying attention, looking out for danger. As Christians, we should be like that. We should be discerning, very discerning. We should be slow to react sometimes so that we can process and think through things scripturally. Has God spoken about this? Is this a kingdom issue? Before I repeat that, before I say that, I should think about it maybe. I should process it maybe. I have an opportunity to reflect on the things that are going on in the world around us from a godly Christian perspective. And so maybe I should be slow to speak on these topics sometimes. I want to recap where we've been for the last few weeks in Mark. Um, We're here in in the temple area. And a lot of what Jesus has been doing surrounds this temple. In fact, what Mark is doing in his gospel, largely in these last few chapters, 11, 12, and now 13, puts the temple as a lot of the tension between Jesus and the religious systems or what they had made of the religious systems. In fact, the temple had taken their focus away from God. They were still worshiping. They just weren't worshiping God. And I think we can do that as well. There's a lot that we as Christian people can drift into worshiping or as professors of Christ can worship without being Christians. I think it sounds strange, or it should sound strange, that we could worship things that aren't God. But sometimes we worship our safety and our comfort and our way of life. And this we would do well as the Christian church to to think about. Do we worship our safety? I think about Christians around the world who don't have the safety that we have. And I mean walking on the street being attacked by other people for religious beliefs. In fact, being in Israel, I I remember seeing this, and I have a picture of it somewhere. I remember seeing this school bus. It was a school bus for kids. And it had looked like chicken wire across the front of the windshield of this vehicle. And it it looked like someone had run a gauntlet with this vehicle. It looked like someone had thrown stones at it because that's exactly what had happened. As the Jewish children would travel through the different communities, people would throw rocks at the vehicle. There's a very real hatred still that we don't really understand. Um, 
I remember standing on top of a mountain, and I have a picture of myself next to two soldiers, and those soldiers are in a, in a nest. They're UN soldiers, and they're forward observers. They stand over top of Syria, and they just watch to record details about the kinds of fighting that are happening below. And that area is where Paul would have encountered Christ in Damascus. But you, you can't go there because it's too violent. Violence for us is a, I have to go down Jonestown Road and do this really weird U-turn so that I can come back up and be on the right side of the road to get to the sandwich man. And sometimes someone gets confused by that traffic light coming down Mountain Road and they turn left when I'm trying to do my U-turn. That's about the whole and the sum of our violent experience in the United States. And so we've become accustomed to that. And I think that's fantastic, by the way. I'm completely okay with that. I need no violence in my life. I'm a pacifist. Not, I mean, I'm not really a pacifist. I'm just a lover. I'm not a fighter, okay? This body's not made for activity, all right? I want to be sharp with my words. I'm not a pacifist. If you've ever seen John and I engage in the mornings at 8 a.m., you would know neither of us is a pacifist. <laughs> Certainly not passive. We need to be careful what we're worshiping because when we're not discerning, it's so easy to be deceived. And deception is deceiving. You feel like when, when you are deceived, it's very difficult to know because you're deceived. You can feel like you're worshiping. You can feel like you're in line with God's will. But feelings, in fact, can be very different As we've gone through, we've come through Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, which, if you recall, gave a parable, which was based on Old Testament stories about laborers. Laborers in a vineyard, where the owner was away from the vineyard. The laborers were supposed to work the vineyard, and then the owner would come back and get the fruits of this operation. Maybe he handed them a turnkey business that was supposed to do a thing and create a widget. And later, he was going to come back and he was going to want some widgets. But what happened in this parable that Jesus tells in Mark 12, 1 through 12, is that the servants come to get some of the fruit owed to the, to the owner of the vineyard. And they beat them and they kill them. And this happens over and over and over. And eventually, the kingdom, the, 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 the vineyard owner sends his own son, and they kill him. This is what I refer to as a very, very thinly veiled reference. Jesus is talking about what is playing out right there. Israel was supposed to produce fruit. The fruit was supposed to be worshipful people who honor God and draw attention to God. We'll see as we start to look at what the temple is, that everything Israel did brought attention to God. But we come to see that they started doing these things for themselves. Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. We see that everything is working against Jesus. The, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, even the Herodians are brought in and they're trying to trick Jesus into saying something damaging to God, saying something that they can point at 
that pits Jesus up against both God and the earthly leadership of the day who could then execute judgment by killing Jesus. They were all about finding a way to get the government to kill Jesus. They were compromising those lines between the kingdom and the government. In all of these conversations, specifically in verses 32 through 34, a scribe who was maybe not of the group of people who had kind of preconceived that they were going to try to fool Jesus, kind of steps up in the background and is interested, maybe, in what Jesus is saying. Maybe this is someone who is actually learning, who's looking at the Scriptures, who's hearing interesting conversation, and is compelled then to talk to, to reach out to Jesus. Verse 32, and the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that He is one and there is no other besides Him. And to love Him with all the heart and all the understanding and all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that He answered wisely, He said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask Him any more questions. Not far. This is probably the most friendly reflection that Jesus will have during this entire time about anything attached to this religious system. You're not far. You're not there, but you, particularly you, are not far. That said, on the heels of these exchanges, on the heels of sitting down and observing, everybody giving their money, right? We talked last week, they're throwing it into these uh, offertories, offering boxes that have big copper, perhaps big metal cones coming out, very ornate at the bottom of a pillar, throwing in their coin money, hearing the clanging, making a scene of it. And then a widow comes who's destitute, has two coins that make up together the smallest denomination of money, puts them in there, he says her faith is greater than all of the multitude who were giving. He doesn't celebrate that, but he recognizes in her a faith. And then we come to chapter 13. Verse 1 reads like this. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. <laughs> and Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Again, we can read that very quickly and miss a lot of what's being said here. This whole section of Scripture is an indictment on the cult-like attitude and atmosphere around the, around the temple. Everything is supposedly about these systems of God. But we said that they're being worshipful while perhaps not worshiping God. Their faith was in these systems. Their faith was based on all the things that they do. Their faith wasn't in God, and then they did all of these things because they trusted their God. It became about the movement and the motion. And so that's where I say we, we have to be careful here 
We have to be cautious here because Jesus is issuing a warning that lands on us just the same. Are there areas in our lives where we're just trusting in motions that we've learned, right? Like learned behaviors. My body just wakes up. My body just comes to church on Sunday. I've done it so long. I was in diapers in a pew learning to be quiet. This temple that Mark keeps focusing his section on the gospel here is actually the second temple. The first was built by King Solomon in, say, 1200 B.C. It's a long time ago, by the way. Start counting backwards before Christ. Start counting up after Christ. Christ died at maybe 30, 33, 33 and a half. I don't know if they measured half years. So 1,200 years before Christ, the first temple was stood up. Then when King David conquered Jerusalem, made it the capital, we have this wonderful environment. Nebuchadnezzar comes along, king of Babylon, takes Jerusalem, destroys the temple, crushed. Kind of the center of focal worship right in the capital area. But a second temple comes along and is built. King Herod builds this one right after the Jews come back from their uh, exile. The project, the temple project, and this blows my mind. And th this is what is so impressive with what is being said here. Um, you know, we were, we were kind of joking around this morning about the size of some of the stones that, you know, maybe they brought in like a low boy, right? So like a trailer that's designed to carry very heavy equipment on an 18-wheeler. They wouldn't hammer the stones in this area because it was supposed to be an area where they're kind of devoted to worship. So they would do this off-site and then they would bring the stones in. And I'm saying stones, maybe you're hearing stones. No, no, no. Stones. Massive. So large that if you saw them, you would be like, wait, wait, wait. 515 BC? They were creating this? I think uh, when, back when we used to go to offices, you see people and they're all in there, like everybody's smart now, right? So you need an open concept office, which is, which is a complete distraction to anyone with a brain. Um, so you've got these like low walls or no walls and everybody's in the same room and everybody's writing, right? And you look around and people will have a sign on their back. Have you ever seen this? I've seen people at work where they've got on headphones and a sign on their back that says, please do not distract me. And they're all banging on their keyboards, doing stuff and things, and talking to people with their hands, with headphones on and not looking at them, right? But they're emailing, probably somebody sitting over there. They're emailing, hey, if you have any questions, just ask Marcin. I, sometimes I walk into those environments, right? And I look around the office and I think, what would it be like if they didn't have computers? Because that's a relatively recent, relatively recent construct, the computer, right? Like, I remember being pretty cool because I had one in junior high. Yeah, that made me cool. I had one in junior high in my room. 
and I had a phone line that went into it. And I would get on the local community college bulletin board and I would get on my little flex modem and I'd hear, okay, all those sounds that you've never heard. And then my computer would connect. And then I'd start doing things with people. Now imagine an environment where all that is gone. What, how does everybody get all their work done? They have like a, a, a filing cabinet next to their desk and they open it up and they pull out a piece of paper and they have carbon copy, right? You've got this paper and it makes your hands dirty because you need three copies of one thing. So somebody signs something, you do it with carbon paper, it pushes half of their signature down to the second sheet, most of it not down to the, to the third sheet, right? So now you've got it in triplicate and you can pass it around these little shotgun envelopes that have these little red tabs and you wrap a string around it and you put it in a box and somebody would carry it to the cubicle uh, you know, nine offices over, and this is how business would happen. Now, that feels archaic in a world where we have computers that are taking care of all that. What about in five in, in, in 515 BC? They're creating this massive structure, stories and stories high, with blocks that are being created off-site and brought in somehow. And then they're building them, they're stacking this massive structure, which is not just a building. Like when we build today, it's really boring, right? Stick buildings and, you know, veneers and facades and all this. Like when you go to Pittsburgh and you look at the buildings, that's pretty awesome, right? They all look like they should have gargoyles and like Batman swinging through in Gotham City because they're cool buildings and they're made out of like carved stone and ornate concrete or like Philadelphia. Now when we build, we don't do that anymore. I could imagine the conversation now. All right, well, I'm going to build this building. I was thinking maybe some cool columns with like a, like a, like a monkey that looks like a bat, like perched on top. You'd be like, why? What do you know? It needs to be green. It needs to be, you know, kind of eco-friendly, right? It needs to be made out of recycled materials. We're not going to make it interesting. We might put it like an angle over here. This thing was one of the modern, was one of the wonders of the world. And here's Jesus. He's just come out of this temple environment. He's correcting. He's teaching people. He's, he's you know, flipped the tables of the money exchangers. He's told everybody they're doing everything wrong. They come out. And then across, he's sitting now in the Mount of Olives, sitting on a hill, looking across at this amazing spectacle of a building, which is built for God, which is the center of worship of the day. It's covered in gold. And this disciple, who's just from a, you know, a fishing village, says to Jesus, you see this great building? It's, it is great. It is amazing. It is incredible. It is breathtaking. I don't know if you remember maybe the first time you ever saw a city. You know that feeling of walking up to a tall building and looking up? And you, you kind of feel like you're going to lose your balance because you're trying to look all the way up this incredible building that's what these guys are experiencing and Jesus looks at them and says do you see these great buildings there will not be one left here not one stone upon another that will not be thrown down how could that be this is the most incredible thing that's ever been this is all about God this is the center of everything Josephus wrote this about it. The outward face of the temple and its front lacked nothing that was 
likely to surprise either men's minds or their eyes. For it was covered all over with plates of gold of great weight. And at the first rising of the sun reflected back a very fiery splendor and made those who forced themselves to look upon it to turn their eyes away, just as they would have done at the sun's rays. This temple appeared to strangers when they were at a distance, like a mountain covered with snow. For as to those parts of it that were not glit, they were exceedingly white. This is absolutely one of the modern, for them, wonders of the world. And Jesus says, now it's going to be trashed. How could that be? You know, you kind of feel like, well, you know, Jesus, I mean, they were pretty excited in that moment, right? They were just talking about the cool building. You could have been like, yeah, dude. That is pretty cool. I'm going to be honest with you right now. It's pretty awesome. Massive stones. Some of them are white. There's a lot of gold on there. That's neat. I mean, it's cool, right? You, know, you ever watch any of those like marvels of engineering videos that you see sometimes? I watch, I watch those with some regularity. They're pretty interesting to see how things are put together. We're pretty creative folk. But Jesus seems kind of wet blanket here in this moment. And it sticks in the back of my mind that as Jesus here is sitting on the, on the Mount of Olives, looking across the valley at this massive temple, somewhere is this fig tree. And if you remember the condition of that fig tree, it's barren. Why is it barren? Because somebody had, didn't have a green thumb and was bad at plant care? No, in fact, it was thriving a few days earlier, doing very well. In fact, looked like maybe it would be hanging with figs. And Jesus cursed it. And if you remember when they were coming back out, was it Peter said, oh my gosh, look, that plant you cursed is dead from the bottom up. And Jesus goes, oh, really? What a testament to his power. Now imagine this. Somewhere out there as they're marveling and drooling over this ornate building which is the center of cult-like worship of something that is not God. Jesus says all that is going to be overthrown and you can almost imagine, if you would stretch your mind with me, almost imagine looking from the temple which you think is so amazing and maybe glancing over at a withering tree. Jesus has just pronounced what will happen to the temple. Do they doubt it? Maybe. But I think there's something here that shows that they're, they're compelled here. They've seen quite a bit in their time with Jesus. And when he tells them that not one stone will be left upon another, maybe they're terrified here. What does he mean? Is he being literal? Maybe it's a spiritual statement. Maybe it's a metaphor. Maybe Jesus doesn't really mean one stone will be on top of another. Maybe he means that stones are people, and as people come up with good ideas, they pile on top of each other, and those ideas won't be around anymore. Maybe that's what Jesus means. 
Verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all of these things are about to be accomplished? Now notice their focus is, when will this be? They're not questioning Jesus. Maybe they're past that. Maybe not. They're asking Jesus, when is this going to happen? What, what, what is it going to look like when this is about to happen? Because in their minds, there's still a lot of them that believes in their minds that Jesus is like a political Messiah. He's going to restore things the way they should be right then, right there in Jerusalem. In fact, when we see his ascension, they're like waiting. And the angel has to come down. It's like, uh... You guys going to go do everything he just told you? They're kind of like, well, wait a minute. Doesn't he come back in a white robe and like conquer everything and new kingdom, new earth and all that stuff happens and it just gets great from here? That perhaps is their expectation. Their focus is on when will this be? And maybe they're stuck on timeline because they don't really fully appreciate Jesus's greater mission. We know because hindsight is 2020, we know that Jesus' greater mission was to create His church on earth, to usher in this age where we live, where the church is full of believers, we hope, uh, who have the Holy Spirit in them that reminds them of righteousness and judgment, that convicts us of sin, that initially drives us to repentance, that brings us to salvation because of the life that Jesus lived, demonstrated for us that He was perfect and always without sin. He gave up His Spirit dying, even though death wasn't due to Him because the penalties of sin is death. Jesus gave up His Spirit, saying it is finished. Because now we can look on the cross of Christ, realize our character is short of God's, vastly short. Like we need another word, we should just create one. We could see Jesus' righteousness, and in a moment, turn from trusting ourselves and our own understanding Turn to trusting Christ as Savior and Lord and be saved and be seen legally before God as righteous. That's justification. Jesus didn't just say, okay, well, it was sin. God didn't say, okay, I'll just, I'll forgive it. He poured out the fullness of his wrath through the willing hands of evil people who hated God and used that as payment for sin. It's the most incredible exchange. You'll never get it. Neither will I. Praise God that it's true, though. So he's doing all of those things, right? In fact, um, Jesus asked his disciples, hey, who, who does everybody say that I am? And they answer, well, some say this, and some say, he's like, yeah, 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 okay, cool, cool, cool story. Who do you say that I am? Pete answers, he's good for that. And he's correct. And it looks great in Mark. But read Matthew. Because then Jesus corrects, <laughs> corrects him in the next breath. Because Peter's like, hey, you know, Jesus, you're, you're not going to die, man. All right, you're not going to be turned over to, to the government and be murdered. 
And so Jesus says, well, slow down there, little buddy. Get behind me, Satan. And in that moment, something tells me Peter felt small. Peter felt really small. Could you imagine the feeling of Jesus referring to you as Satan? Get behind me. I mean, have you ever had that experience where you know you're totally wrong and it's becoming like apparent in front of a lot of people all at the same time? And it's hard to describe, but it's almost like an out-of-body experience where you are hovering over little you. It's like you're there, but you're not really there. I think that's probably what that was like. But what Jesus was saying is, the mission that I'm on, what I'm doing, what I've just described to you is fulfillment of everything that God has said about the way that salvation would ultimately be ushered in for people. And to try to stop that, would be the very mission of Satan. To try to preserve my life, to try to make what God has foretold not be true, would be what Satan would want to do. I have to do this. I'm submitting myself to this. I have to turn myself over to the cross so that there would be a way for you and every single person like you to be saved. So that it can be finished. But these disciples, they might have seen the temple as a little bit different. They might have been taught differently about the temple. And we have to be careful of this, too, our our preconceptions, the things that we just automatically think are true, and we don't even really know why, right? Maybe coming out of your childhood, you've you've been confronted with some of those. Um, I remember saying things sometimes like, that I just thought were true from a kid because people told me that they were true or not. And, and um, if you've known me for more than a couple of days, I am always right, even when I'm wrong. Um, and so I've argued some pretty ridiculous things with people. Like I remember having an argument about houseflies and saying that houseflies land on you and they suck your blood. And somebody's like, no, they literally do not. That's mosquitoes. I'm like, yes, they do. And then I looked it up and I was totally wrong. It is mosquitoes, it's not houseflies. Um, same thing, song we sung earlier. Talk about pangs. I made fun of somebody. I said, it's pains, hunger pains. They said, no, it's not. In fact, it was Brianna, so don't tell her she was right. It sure was. And so here are these guys hearing from Jesus that not a single stone is going to be left on top of another. And they're like, well, wait a minute. I've read my Bible, Jesus, all right? I turn to Psalm 78, verses 68 and 69, which clearly refer to the temple that's just clearly going to be here forever. I'm struggling with what you're saying. Psalm 78, verses 68 through 69. But he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. And so Jesus is saying, it's going to be no more. How do they reconcile this? Jesus, what's the timeline on this? Jesus, what does it look like when that's about to happen? And so Jesus starts to answer their question, kind of, in verse 5. See that no one leads you astray. 
Now notice here what Jesus does and what Jesus does not do. He doesn't answer their question about timeline. Maybe because they can't fully appreciate that. Because if you, if you look at the timeline, it's actually going to be 20 years from now when the temple is destroyed. Wait, is my math right? 70 to 30? Yeah, not 20. 40. 40 years. Maybe the significance of the timeline would have been lost on them, right? Maybe for the first 10 years, they'd stay charged up and telling that story. No, that temple's going to get destroyed. At year 11, they might have started to wonder. At year 20, maybe they're getting a little softer. 25, you get the point. Verse 6, many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines, but these are but the beginning of birth pains. Jesus gives them a standing, lasting warning. Not a timeline of events. And on the strength of his testimony, he gives that. The same Jesus that fed 5,000 out of a little boy's transformer lunch. Right? You can almost hear the rusty hinges as he flips those little metal latches up. You know, an Optimus Prime flips up and they're like, okay, we're going to feed all 5,000 people. What you got in there, Theo? He turns it around. He's like, fish and bread. And then they're like, cool, let's just feed everybody out of it, right? And just to make the point, there's going to be leftovers. Like, that's my favorite part. <laughs> like, we didn't just feed 5,000 people. It was also too much. So everybody could take a little bit home, maybe. I don't know how that works. On the testimony, on the strength of Jesus' testimony, they're believing what he's saying. Or certainly they should. And that's what I love about us now. We have our scriptures, and when we start to feel bits of doubt, what should happen in our minds is we should go back to the evidences of God's character. Sometimes that'll be from our own lives. Sometimes that'll be from the lives of people that we know. When I know William's testimony, when I know Bob's testimony, that also encourages my faith. Perhaps because I end up in a similar circumstance. Perhaps because they encourage me. Perhaps because they tell me what's been going on in their lives. Perhaps because I look back to my own testimony and say, okay, God, you've brought me through so much. I know you're not just going to leave me here. So I trust you in this. Do you remember at the end of the warning of the fig tree what he encouraged his disciples with? At the very end of that, he tells them, have faith in God. Look at Mark 11, verses 20 through 22. This is, they're coming back past that fig tree that stands out there as a testimony to all that has been occurring these past couple of days. Verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered, he 
had his ginkgo biloba. Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you'd cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. There's a lot happening there. But this is just more strength to Jesus' testimony. He's pronouncing judgment against this kind of temple cult, this whole worship system that was about anything but God. And he encourages them from the testimony of that withered fig tree, have faith in God. And so Jesus, on the strength of his own authority, his own word, his active testimony, says, beware of those who will come in my name. Now, when we talk about the destruction of the second temple, um, destruction doesn't quite cover exactly what happened. We just said that that was one of the wonders of the world. They were sitting across a valley, which it's not terribly far. I'm making up distance, which I'm spatially bad, but maybe here to the Capitol building, maybe a little less, maybe a little more. They're sitting over there. It's, Josephus describes it. It's so bright, you can't even, when the sun is coming up, you can't even look at it directly. It's like looking directly at the sun ray. You can't. And if you're on the opposite side of it, it's so white. You just, you can't not see this thing. And we talk about its destruction like it just fell. Like it was a controlled explosion. You ever watch those videos? I like those. Um, and they just did that, uh, well, several years back, I guess, right on the West Shore with the, uh, the hospital building over there, right? They did one of those controlled explosions, which are really cool. Like, I'm like, how do you get that job? Where it just kind of blows up and then it crumples in on itself. This was not how the temple was destroyed. A Roman emperor had decided, maybe seven years after Jesus' death, that his statue should be stood up inside the temple. Now that's weird, right? Like, like if Mayor Papenfuss said, hey, Transcend Church, I would like a gold statue of myself. Maybe like right in front of your pulpit or off to the side. Or if Governor Wolf was like, hey, I would love a statue of like me and Lieutenant Governor Fetterman inside the sanctuary. That would be odd, right? To have those kinds of boundaries being mixed. But that's exactly what happened. Now think about the, the worship in the temple. You had, we, we talked about the different courts that you would walk through as you come up to the, to, the, to the temple area, into the Holy of Holies, where almost no one goes. And this guy wants a golden statue to himself? The Jews were outraged. Absolutely outraged. I don't even know if we could fully imagine quite how that message would have been received. Do you ever think about how differentiated the religious Jewish life is? I was just thinking about this the other day because a, a, good, a good buddy of mine is a, is a religious Sabbath-observing Jew. And I was thinking about, you know, it was Saturday and I was sitting at home and I was gorging myself on uh, sports events. All day, from like 9 a.m., I got up and I was in front of the TV at 9, switching between all the events that were occurring until 3.30 uh, p.m. when all of it was done. And I was thinking about, like, his kids certainly couldn't do that, right? Friday night, 
Sunset, gotta be home. Saturday all day, can't even touch a computer. No phone. Sunsets on Saturday, you're back at it. That's a different life. He can't come over to my house and eat either. And I can't make him burgers. We can't do those things together. It's a very set-apart life. And now you've got a government official wants their statue. Not even just in the local synagogue, in the temple. This is scandal. And it doesn't quite go down right away. Because they say no, I'm sure, very convincingly. And then it takes about 30 more years of, I'm sure, constant warring and fighting. And then a Roman general named Titus, cool name, drove an army and took Jerusalem. Now this is where the temple sits. And I want you to wrap your head around this number because Josephus records this. During this period of time, this time when the temple would be destroyed, 1.1 million killed. 1.1 million. I think, I don't know, Harrisburg proper, 50,000, 80,000 people. And they weren't killed like nicely. You know how you nicely kill people? I'm locked into the city area with no, no food coming in and out. And so you've got people trapped inside of these walls, and now they're starting to have some disagreements, you can imagine. Right? Should we turn ourselves in? Should we just all kill ourselves? And there's infighting. People are dying literally of starvation. People are dying because they're killing one another. I'm sure it's getting very nasty inside there. And so finally, the, the soldiers come in, and now, if this is a building that's so bright, covered in gold, that you can't even look at it, you can imagine what happens. They start to pillage it. And then fires start to take place. And then things start to melt that hold the structure together, and the whole thing just gets pulled apart. And then you can read about them, like, prying stones over to try to get at more riches and treasures as they're stealing from it. And so guess what you have? Now you have a destroyed temple without one stone standing on top of another and a bunch of dead people from famine and wars and that whole period of 30 years where there was probably rumors of wars. They're in this temple. They're in this system where there's burnt offerings and sacrifices. Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 21 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. What you're doing is worthless. You might as well just eat it. It would be like Gomer, married to Hosea, coming home after a solid evening of work, selling herself to anyone who would buy and showing up with a Valentine's Day chocolate heart-shaped box. A little genuine. 
pony playing on the radio. Snuggle up to her husband. He's going to be somewhat disinterested in this. Now you've got sin-sick, wretched people worshiping anything but God under the pretense of worship. This is what Jesus sees in the temple. And so Mark 11 enters in with the idea of prophecy from Jeremiah 7, the parable of the tenants. The destruction of the tree. And just before he gives his, his prophecy about this destruction, just like Jeremiah 7.22 where Yahweh says, I'm not interested in this kind of worship. Jesus lays an indictment on the people. And he says, look, this place isn't even going to exist anymore. Not one stone on top of the other. Jesus is issuing in something else. And it's a people who are supposed to have a heart for God. You imagine after adultery with Bathsheba, after having her husband murdered, David writes Psalm 51. And in verse 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. And in a strange way, he gets it. It's so hard to truly appreciate the forgiveness of God without understanding the weight of our sin. And it's really hard to understand the weight of our sin. I think most of us probably aren't convinced of it. That our heart's natural state before God, it resists Him. And more than resists Him, it actually actively hates the truths of God. Ray Comfort talks about, you know, you never hear somebody when they hit their thumb with a hammer scream out, Ah, Mahatma Gandhi. Everybody's mad at Jesus. Why is that? Why do people take the Lord's name in vain? What Have you ever been, and, and maybe you're here, I don't know if you are, I'm thankful that you're here, but have you ever been in a place where you're really struggling to believe all that's said about Jesus? And you keep hearing Jesus' name, and you keep hearing Christians talk about the forgiveness of sin and God being holy. And you're sitting there, and in your, your skin is starting to crawl, and you're really getting a little frustrated inside. And you're like, I can't believe that these people believe this. Like, do they honestly believe this? They're singing these songs with these stupid words, saying this dumb stuff that they can't possibly believe, and you're getting frustrated. And so you can't even hear it without becoming angry towards it and towards people. What is it in us that causes this anger and this war and this frustration towards God? It's conviction. Because even written on the heart of the unbeliever is a deep-seated knowledge that that's true. There's something there. I mean, think about these dates. 1,200 years before Christ. And you know what? If you're not a believer, that, that gets your craw, doesn't it? How are we measuring time before Christ? Maybe it's before the common era. That's it. 1,200 years, 2,000 years before the common era. And we're still focused on this God thing. And yet nobody can find that magic bullet that says this thing is broken. Look, it disagrees with itself. It stands the test of time. 
Because its author is God. It's without error. It's internally consistent. Written by how many authors on how many continents who've never met each other telling one consistent story? Now, this is incredible. You should wrestle with this. And Jesus, on the power of His testimony, says to His disciples, not one stone on what you think is the most wonderful thing this planet has to offer will remain together. And on the testimony of that withered tree, He says, have faith in God. And that same thing is true for us. That's what our faith should be in. Not in religious systems. Not in good works. Not in deeds we do for our church. Our faith should be in our God and in the Christ that he sent. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the truth of your word, for the witness that Jesus leaves behind God for us, for the words that he leaves behind for us, which are life and breath, which are living, sharper than any two-edged sword. God, I pray that you would convict us even this morning of sin and righteousness and judgment, that you would leave us supple and God that you would leave us behind with a faith in you. Like Jesus encouraged his disciples standing before that withered tree to have faith in you. God, I pray that you give us that. That you give us a desire for that. And that you